just, I, I have nothing for you to take notes on, so grab your neighbor's hand and write on it, all right? And, uh, and that'll be good. All right, so here we go. When I witnessed the heavens and the event of the great significance, I saw a woman clothed in sun and with the moon beneath her feet and the crown with 12 stars in her head. Now, from a premillennial perspective, chapter 12, verse 1, this woman, clothed in sun, walking with the moon, with a crown of 12 stars on her head, is the nation of Israel. And the sun might speak of her exalted position as God's chosen people, and the 12 stars would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And the time that you're dealing with now is the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the two and a half witnesses, um, were spreading the gospel and revival broke out and they were martyred for their faith. God raised them from the dead. That's called the abomination of separate, uh, desolation. Happens right in the middle of the text. And then we, we press forward uh, from there. Verse 2 says that she was pregnant and cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witness in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his heads, and he was so big that his tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour the baby as soon as it was born. Is this a horror movie or what? Verse 2, the meaning is clearly that the babe that... Israel was going to give birth to is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, born from the tribe of Judah, from the nation of Israel, would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and bless the entire world. Then you come to verse 3, the second uh, significant event that he sees, and it's a large red dragon. Premillennials would say it's red because of the blood of the tribulation saints and the persecution of the saints, and that um, evidently, uh, wait a minute, I lost my place. I usually have bigger print, and I didn't print it bigger, so it's a little tougher for me tonight. The dragon has ten heads, and the ten heads, so this is one creature with ten heads, and the ten heads represent ten kingdoms. If you're a premillennialist, you kind of hold to the fact that this is the revived Roman Empire. All right, now if you Google how many countries were in the Roman Empire, there are far more than 10, but 10 make up this coalition of the revived Roman Empire that this red beast uh, has a part of. These 10 kings are believed to comprise the revived Roman Empire. Daniel 7, 7, verse Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, 20 and 24, and then Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12. Then in verse 4, his tail swept away a third of the stars. Now that is a big guy. Well, the obvious meaning, if you're a premillennialist, is that this is Lucifer. And Satan and also the dragon from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3, Lucifer was the highest ranking angel in heaven before his own fall. And before his own sin of pride and wanting the worship of God's people around God's throne. Evidently, he had administrative and oversight duties of, of the archangels and the living creatures and, and the vast host of angelic beings that are in heaven. Now, many believe that the duties also encompass leading the angels in worship. 
And the pride was he wanted that worship for himself instead of giving praise and honor to God. He was so charismatic and persuasive that he persuaded a third of the angels, stars, he persuaded a third of the angels to follow him in a revolt, in a war in heaven against God who sits on the throne and the other angels in heaven. So they lost that war, were expelled from heaven, banished to earth and and other realms, and that's Lucifer. Well, then you come to verse 5, and she gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. Now, the man-child is Jesus Christ, and that rod of iron refers to his reign and his rule after the second coming of Jesus Christ. So you have the, rap, the, the cross, the rapture, the first three and a half years, time of peace, and Christ building up his, you know, ten kingdom, end time coalition empire, dragon with seven heads, ten horns, that kind of thing. And then you have the, the abomination of desolation right in the middle, changes everything. The last t- three and a half years are, are just all out war and increasing tribulation. And then you have the Christ's return and the battle of Armageddon. And then he rules with that rod of iron for a thousand year millennial reign. Got it? All right. Verse 6. And the woman fled from the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her for 1,260 days. Now that's 42 months or three and a half years. All right. And so again, that goes back to Daniel chapter 7. I think it's also Daniel chapter 2, where there's, it's a time and times and half a time. So a time would be one year, times would be two years, and then a half a time would be a half a year. So one plus two plus a half gives you three and a half years. And that's how they come up with the last part of the end of the tribulation of three and a half years. All right? And so that three and a half year mark is the seven-year tribulation. So now the woman, Israel, runs to the wilderness fleeing because of persecution, because of tribulation. She goes into an obscure area of the earth fleeing Satan's persecution for the last half of the seven years. The seven-year tribulation is divided into two parts that I already told you about. Tensions are mounting increasingly high. The The dragon, which is Satan, increases his pressure, increases his persecution, increases his anger towards towards Christ and the nation of Israel and the people of God. And then during this time, you get a little flashback to the the two witnesses and a hint of the 144,000. And so the two witnesses started this massive revival... In the first three and a half years, it carries on through the last three and a half years. Even though the witnesses were killed, God miraculously resurrects them. And now they go and sharing the good news of the gospel as they're running and fleeing persecution. Now, this is very, very true of what happened in the early church. And historically to the early church. When Jesus Christ was on the throne, or when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven... The church began being persecuted by the, by the Roman emperors, and they fled Jerusalem. Then they went to Antioch. They fled Antioch and went into Asia Minor. And they went into places like uh, Derby and Lystrum and Colossae and Galatia and to uh, 
uh, Corinth. And then they, they fled from there as persecution just kind of kept following them. They would keep fleeing. That's kind of what's going on here. As the woman keeps moving, as Israel keeps moving, Satan keeps following, stalking, and attacking. Then you come to verses 7 through 13. Verses 7, and by the way, that happens, and she flees for 7 through 13. Now, the story I just told you about Lucifer being in heaven and the fight in heaven with God and his angels, that is really the story between chapter, chapter 12, verses 7 through verse 13. It all happens at a previous time, but it's written to describe the time in the last three and a half years. That is a direct quote from an absolute premillennialist, and I can't explain it any better than that. All right? Then you drop down to verse 14. All right? We're just going to fast forward to verse 14. Verse 14 takes place after verse 6. 7 through 13 is kind of this parenthetical pause. Just to kind of bring us up to date. Rewind a little bit. Just to remind us about the history and the origin of Satan, the evil one. So... If the narrative then picks back up, she was given two wings. Remember, she's running. She was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. So Israel is still running, still fleeing persecution that the devil is just leveling out on Israel in the last three and a half years. There she would care for and be protected from the dragon for a time, times, and a half a time Three and a half years, two, 1,260 days, or 42 months, the last three and a half years of Revelation. All right? Look at verse 16. But the earth helped her. Oh, by the way, back up to verse 15. Then the woman tried, or the dragon found the woman, found Israel. All right? Probably a large concentration of Israelites. And notice the language. And he tried to drown the woman, Israel, the nation, tried to just totally do away with the nation as a whole, with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. Now, if you take this literally, and premillennials typically do, this is just like a huge waterfall, you know, to annihilate and flood to annihilate the Jews. But what happened is that in verse 16, the earth opened up, swallowed up the waters, protected the nation of Israel from the mouth of the dragon. The dragon was angry that the woman, at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children. All who keeps God's command and, command and maintain their testimony in Jesus Christ. So evidently there's a shift now, maybe halfway between the last half of the tribulation. He, he, he shifts from Israel and, and attacking and persecuting Israel. He shifts from Israel to attacking the rest of the children, that would be the church, and those who've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior through the church. Then the dragon took his stand on the shore of the sea, and I think verse 18 really ought to go inside and be included in chapter, verse 1 of chapter 13, but they didn't ask me when they were putting chapters and verses together, so we'll just leave it that way. All right, are you with me so far? You're through chapter 12. But now you come to chapter 13. 
He says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns were on its horn. By the way, the seven heads uh, have to do with, uh, with, with power. The seven crowns have to do with authority. And, and the ten horns have to do with wisdom. And so this is just like this ominous creature... And written on each head were the names that blaspheme God. Now, this is not the dragon. The dragon is Satan. This is the first beast that comes up out of the water. And this beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power. Satan gave this beast, the first beast, out of the water, his own power and throne and great authority. And then he goes on to describe, I saw one of the heads of the beast that seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed, and the whole world marveled at the miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. Let's just stop right there for just a second. Now, a premillennialist would say, aha, this is the Antichrist. This guy right here, this beast right here. And for a premillennialist who takes... Revelation as literally as possible, all of a sudden, they now jump into symbolism and apocalyptic literature. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. That's okay. The amillennialists will, will do that too. I just want you to know that even in their attempt to be literal, that they will jump back and forth into and out of apocalyptic and, and symbolic language. By the way, the word antichrist is never used in the book of Revelation. It is the beast out of the earth or out of the sea. And then there's a second beast that you'll meet at the end of chapter 13 that comes up out of the earth. And that beast is the false prophet. So now just as God has a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Satan also has an infernal trinity. You know, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Now this Antichrist was given tremendous power through Satan. Satan just, just somehow endued him with, with supernatural power that he could do some incredible things. Fast forward. They worship the dragon. That's the devil for giving the beast, in the premillennial view, that's the Antichrist, such power and they also worshipped the beast. Now people are worshipping in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. They are worshipping the Antichrist. And that's why he has blasphemy. Or the next beast would have blasphemy on his name. Because it certainly is blasphemy when we worship anything else but Jesus Christ. So, we're now down to Revelation chapter 13 and verses 5 through 8. These, oh, by the way, look at the end of verse 4. Who is as great as the beast, they exclaimed, who is able to fight against him? Do you realize the Israelites said something very similar to that when they crossed the Red Sea and they said, who is like the Lord our God, who can stand against him? 
they said something like that after David killed Goliath and, and they returned from battle when they were saying David killed his, or Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands, who is able to stand against the Lord our God? And now almost taking the language of Scripture, who's able to stand against the beast the world is saying? Who's able to fight against him? It's a rhetorical question. And the world answers, no one. There is none greater than the Antichrist. There is none greater than this beast in power and authority and in wisdom. Therefore, the world chooses to worship him either willfully or coercively, but they worship the Antichrist. Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. Uh, by the way, I think the simplest definition of blasphemy is this. Attributing the works of Christ to Satan. That is probably the simplest definition I could give you of a blasphemy. Attributing the works of Jesus Christ to Satan. And so here he is saying all of this stuff against God. And by the way, we're... we're told God does not respond. And he, the Antichrist, the beast that came up out of the sea, was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. It was open season. He had a blank check. He could do anything he wanted to do. So what does he do? The first thing we see him do is that he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name, slandering where he lives, slandering his throne, and slandering his people, all those that live in heaven. By the way, I think that was the object of his hatred. I think that was the object of his, of his, of his wrath. And I think that was the object of his persecution. Anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ. And the beast, the beast that came up out of the sea, the Antichrist, was allowed to wage war against God's holy people, and to conquer them. Now, I'll be honest, whether you're an amillennialist or a premillennialist or a dispensational premillennialist, or you're just a panmillennialist, you just hope it pans out all right in the end, you got a little problem with the verse that God, that he was given authority. Wait a minute, let me back up here. Verse 7, and the beast was allowed to wage war against God's people. Who allowed it? Who allowed it? Some people say, well, the dragon allowed it. And the, and, the la and the dragon was just simply, or the beast out of the earth, the Antichrist, was simply doing the dragon, Satan's bidding, giving him the power. He allowed it to happen because it was Satan's power. Other people would say, no, no, this is God's providential will that even in bad things and in bad times... God providentially allows evil to happen and he is so sovereign and so God and so good that he brings glory even out of bad things that happen. Got it? And so he was given the authority to rule every tribe and every people and every language and every nation. And all the people belong to this world worship the beast. <laughs> Everybody worshiped the beast everybody because if you didn't worship the beast you were killed 
and, and the beast that comes up out of the earth, the false prophet that we're coming to in just a, a few verses, he's the one that puts kind of the, the hammer down, kind of like the Inquisition did back in the dark ages of the, of the church and of history. And he says in verse 8, and all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose name are not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. In other words, his destiny was already, already his, his will was already set. He would die for the sins of the world so that those of us could accept Christ as our Savior and have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. We'll come back to the Lamb's book of life around Revelation chapter 19 and 20. But here he wants us to know that if you worship the Antichrist, who is really, and what it really is, is Satan worship. If you really worship that, your name is not in the Lamb's book of life. Period. When you live that kind of lifestyle, away from God, it is saying, God, I want no part of you. And the blasphemies that the red dragon spews out, Satan spews out against God, are the same blasphemies that the Antichrist spews out against God, and it's the same blasphemies that the worshipers of the Antichrist will spew out against God, against God's throne, and against God's people. And when you blaspheme God, that is serious business. And your name is nowhere found in the Lamb's book of life. So now, I mean, I'm telling you, at this kind of point, in that last half of the three and a half years, I mean, the world is just about a powder keg. Tensions are, are incredibly high. And, and they're just, it has a short tipping point. And then there's this little song, anyone who has an ear to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. And anyone who is destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. That means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. Now these are kind of tough verses, again, for, for either group. But basically, regardless of your view, these verses are hard to explain. From a pre-millennial position, there's two points you can hold. One is that it is an acknowledgement that when all of this happens, it's useless to take up arms and resist. Because who can stand against the Antichrist? Who can? And it could mean that the wicked who are capturing and killing Christians will eventually end up captives and killed. You can choose whichever you want. Neither one is a good option. Because this is a horrendous time to be alive. The dragon still hates, the devil still hates the Jews. Now he's going after the rest of the children. Persecution is increasing. The church is under great stress and distress and tribulation. Now there's this Antichrist that the world worships. And if you do not worship the Antichrist, you are in a lot of trouble. Where do you get that? Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. So now we got the dragon, chapter 12. We have the first beast out of the water, out of the sea, 
chapter 13 and verse 1. And now we have the beast that's out of the earth. That's chapter 13 and verse 11. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like that of a lamb. In other words, he looks very religious. He looks very godly. He, he looks like a, a church. And he spoke with a voice of a dragon. He exercised all authority of the first beast. And he required all of the earth and its people to worship the first beast. Those are, whose fatal wounds had been healed, he did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down from earth, from the sky, while everybody was watching. And with all the miracles, he was allowed to uh, perform on behalf of the first beast. He deceived all the people who belonged to this world, and he ordered that the people make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. Let's talk about this first beast that was fatally wounded. Remember the beast had uh, ten head, or seven heads and ten horns, right? And one of the heads looked like it suffered a severe life-threatening blow. And so just as God supernaturally raised the two witnesses back to life, many premillennials believe it is here that Satan flexes his muscles and apparently brings the Antichrist, who appeared to have a fatal blow, maybe an assassination, we don't know, who appeared to have this fatal blow... He comes back to life and all the world again. Their, their marvel and their awe and respect and, and just kind of wanting to be on board with this guy just increases. And so this second, this second beast comes up out of the sea. And he required all the earth, the second person. He required all of the earth and its people to worship the first beast, whose fatal head, had wound on his head had been healed. He did astounding miracles, making fire flash down from the earth, from the sky, kind of resembling Elijah and praying fire down from heaven on, on, uh, with the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel. And while everybody there was watching with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He was a false prophet. He lied in God's name. He is so hideous and so depraved that he is so cold and callous, he consigns, helps millions and millions and billions into the pit of hell. And he doesn't even blink an eye. In fact, he orders the people to make a statue of the beast who was fatally wounded, then he, permitted, then he was permitted to give life to the statue so it could speak. And we don't know if this is some kind of trick or, or evil magic or if it is what it says it is, just simply power given from the devil through the Antichrist to the false prophet to bring an inanimate object into life to speak. And I'm telling you, if I'm at a museum and I'm looking at a statue... 
and that statue speaks to me, Mikey ain't hanging around very long. But this statue had a completely different effect because the world now is enamored with the Antichrist. He is our guy. We thought we lost him, but he came back to life. Oh, wow. He, he has this eternal life capacity. Why, he must be God, and so we worship him. And then the statue of the beast commanded that everyone refusing to worship must die. And he required everyone, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given the mark of the beast on his hand or on his forehead, and so that no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for its number of the, it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So 666 is tied to the Antichrist, which is tied to the false prophet, making the world worship him, whether they want to or not, because if you don't worship him, you're going to die through persecution. If they don't arrest you and persecute you and torture you and kill you, then they will shut off your credit card, your ATM uh, or your debit card will be nothing. You will not be able to access your cash. You will not be able to use your credit card. You are, in essence, cut off from all economic transactions and so the number of this man if you can figure it out is six 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 who the world is in serious spiritual danger so to let the world know that you are a follower a worshiper of the antichrist you would get this mark either on your forehead or on your right arm it could be infrared you know kind of like when you go to the and they put that thing that marker that nobody could see but it's it's there and you put it under a special light and you glow and all that kind of stuff or it may be an obvious mark a tattoo it some people think it might be a computer chip now by the way and i, I thought about this as i was studying this i am not fearful of a computer chip my dad has Alzheimer's. My dad, if he were to start to wander and just, because my mom is not able to quickly respond, I would say, let's put a homing device, let's just put it right in under the skin of dad, so if he walks out the door, we can track him. And you go, wait a minute, whoa, 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 that is 666. No. My dad did not worship the statue. My dad did not worship the Antichrist. Bless his heart, he doesn't even know what the Antichrist is anymore because of his disease. He, he would not know any of that, and that is totally disconnected to worship of a blasphemous, satanically empowered, hideous, torturous, cruel man who's bent on extinguishing the Jews and if he were alive today, killing every one of us in this room, and your children, and your grandchildren, and your side of the family, and your spouse's side of the family, third cousins on down, it didn't matter. Total obliteration. To the extent that I believe the Antichrist and Satan, this is kind of my take, would not even want the name of God or Jesus Christ ever spoken on the face of this earth again. 
Got to do something with the internet, but you got the idea. That's the premillennial view. Catch your breath. Here's the Arminian view. Now, while the, while the premillennial view is tied to future events, events still to come, the, the, anti, the two witnesses has not come, the abomination of separation has not come, the rapture hopefully has not come. If it has, we're all in trouble. The Antichrist has not been elevated. The false prophet has not risen up from the earth. Got it? And, and, and so a premillennialist talks about these events in the future. And again, I'm trying to present Revelation as it making sense to John's original author. And John's original audience. Not author. To his original audience. So... Go back to chapter 12 and verse 1. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the verses up there, but I'm not going to read them this time because the verses haven't changed. It's just the lens that we see it through. And Amillennius would say, you know what? There, there are future things that the book of Revelation obviously talks about. Absolutely. But there are also, there are also events in history that may be what John is speaking to in apocalyptic imagery and apocalyptic pictures so an amillennialist would say that chapter 12 and verse 1 starts a new beginning the characters are essentially the same the conflict is essentially the same and the outcome is the same as the first 11 chapters but in this new section the action is much faster it's much more intense as the judgment of rome is followed by the judgment on all that are evil and finally the conflict emerges into a complete victory for God and the forces of righteousness and by the way a premillennialist ends up with God winning and the forces of righteousness winning as well we end up at the same place whether you're one or the other and I haven't decided which I am yet I'm just telling you the two and by the way this is the last time I'm going to do two sermons and one Wednesday night because that was like hard to prep for today and yesterday, and Monday, and Sunday afternoon. But I want you to get a sense just for the difference, just from the way you look at Scripture. All right? So, here's an overview of the conflict. The conflict is between the radiant woman, verse 1, and the dragon, verse 2. His first beast out of the sea, his second beast out of the earth. And they make every attempt to destroy the woman and her children... The forces of God, the lamb and the sickle, that's chapter 14, we'll talk about that next week, are victorious. And as the conflict closes in chapter 20, we will see the dragon and his allies just banished to hell, fire, the lake of fire forever and ever, never to bother the lamb or people or God or earth or anyone ever again. But now in an amillennialist view... Everything is highly apocalyptic and highly symbolic. So the issue then is the radiant woman and her children. Chapter 12, verses 1 and following. The radiant woman has been debated by scholars who hold to an amillennial position. And we're not going to settle it tonight. But John writes that a great sign appeared to heaven. And a woman was clothed in the sun and the moon and under her feet. And we've already read that. And John saw a great sign. And a sign is a symbol pointing to something else. The fact that this woman is spoken of as a great sign emphasizes either that it's the Virgin Mary 
or it's the nation of Israel. Or you even have a third option some people go to that it could infer both because Mary was a Jew and therefore was a part of the nation of Israel. I don't know how you dice all that up, but I think we can kind of summarize the fact that since the beginning of people committing their heart and life to Jesus Christ, it has infuriated Satan, and Satan has been on the hunt, on the attack, looking to persecute and kill, if he can, followers of Jesus Christ. If you don't think persecution is going on in this world, go home tonight, check out of the message, pull out your smartphone, and Google www.persecutedchurch.com. Put your headphone in, check out with me, and just listen to story after story after story of churches, of pastors, of individuals, of believers who have been killed, martyred, crucified, tortured, maimed, simply because they believe Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And so, an Amelitius would say, let's walk through these passages and let's look at the four wars that are represented into this passage. The first war is the war on earth directed at Christ. That's chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. And you can see the verses that are up there. The dragon emerges, the red from the persecuting of God's people, seven heads, symbolic of great wisdom, ten horns for great power, and seven diadems or crowns to demonstrate his authority. And the dragon stands before a pregnant woman about to give birth, and the woman gives birth to a child that's destined to rule, and she was supernaturally protected from the forces of evil. Well, we believe that person, that baby, was the Christ child. Now, if you know your New Testament, when the Magi's came, they had left Herod. And Herod had lied and said, and he was, you know, kind of the proconsul there, Jerusalem king of Jerusalem. And he said, listen, when you find the Christ child, come back, Matthew chapter 2, and tell me where he is so that I might worship him also. They left. He called his, his uh, soothsayers and magicians and conjurers and... and uh, charlatans in and I, and he said tell me about this christ child this scepter of the tribe of judah where it's going to be born and they said bethlehem and so herod this sharp brilliant political man feared this child so much that he had all the male children two and under slaughtered slaughtered you don't think somebody was standing there waiting to kill Baby Jesus. And remember, it was the Magi who were Zoroastrists, who were not followers of Christ, told Mary and Joseph that you need to return home a different way. And they did. And then the angel spoke to Joseph and, and said, you need to head down to Egypt because trouble's coming. And I'll protect you until the time I tell you to bring back. That is not a short trip in a car. That's not a short trip on a plane. And if you are riding a donkey and you've just had a baby, that is certainly not a fun trip. And so an amillennialist would say this is God's way of taking New Testament history and saying that just as God protected Christ at his birth and just as God protected Christ in his infancy and provided a safe place for him. God will protect the church and God will protect the, the Christian and, and provide safe place 
and safe lodging for them. So the message then becomes that God cares about his people. Symbolic language, that God cares about his people and will always provide a way of escape. Wait a minute, isn't that a New Testament verse? Paul writing and said that our God, when you're in a situation beyond your ability to cope or deal with it, will always provide a way of escape. And so an amillennialist perspective would say that in this war that the devil gets so infuriated because he loses the war. Here's Satan who convinced the 30 of the angels to follow him. He lost the war in heaven, can't kill God. Now he can't even kill a baby. He is losing face. His pride been hurt. And you men know what happens when we lose face. We just kick in a different gear and go at it even harder. And that's what he did. When he could not defeat Christ on earth. And by the way, even in his infancy, and you come out of his infancy, and he starts his three and a half years of ministry. Three and a half years, 1,260 days, 42 months. He starts three and a half years. You decide what that's all about. But he starts his three and a half years of ministry. He's up on the Mount of Temptation, and there the devil tempts him three times, trying to trick him, to spoil him. But his ultimate goal is to destroy him. And God protects him. There's a time Jesus is walking into Jerusalem at Passover. And there's a crowd that wants to make him king, and there's another one, a crowd that wants to kill him because the crowd wants to make him king, and they pick up stones and sticks and rocks to kill him, and miraculously, he slips through the crowd. God has always taken care of his son, Jesus, and the point is God will always take care of his children. He'll always take care of you. Now, if you are a first century, and this is, this is not part of my notes, all right? This is just Mike Trimble and just give you something to think about. If you are a first century Christian at 96 AD and John is on a tiny island of Patmos and you're sitting on a bunch of rocks, he's telling you this story and your mama's in jail for worshiping Jesus Christ and your daddy's dead because he's worshiping Jesus Christ and you don't know where your wife is and you're not sure if you'll ever see your children again, isn't that good news to hear? Not that some year way down yonder, 2,000, maybe 2,500 years from now, there's going to be this cataclysmic event and the two witnesses and, and, and the Antichrist is going to come, but the Lord's going to return. And I get that. I understand that. I was taught that. I'm not saying I don't believe that. I'm just simply saying I think this, at least from the first six verses here, gives that Christian in Smyrna and that Christian in Philadelphia and that Christian in Sardis and that Christian in Ephesus and the other four churches of Asia Minor. I think it gives them tremendous hope that God has not forgotten them in their hour of trial, testing, or tribulation. And the good news is he's not going to forget us either, amen? So that's the first battle. The second battle starts after the loss of the first battle. And uh, wait a minute, I just skipped a bunch of pages. I can't do that. So the second war, the first war is on heaven directed at Christ. The second war is in heaven directed at Christ. Go back to verse 7. Remember where I said that if you're a premillennialist, this is a parenthetical, you know, 
referring back to the original, you know, where Satan fought and was kicked out of heaven from Ezekiel and, and other, other passages. Well, and Amalinus would say, you know what? Satan was so incensed. He was so maddening. He was so caught up in his own vanity, in his own hatred, in his own lust for glory, that he and his angels stormed the very gates of heaven. And there they were confronted by Michael, the fighter. I love that. Michael, the fighter with a sword. I wish I had a sword right now. And Michael fought off the devil and his angels. And they didn't even get a foothold into the place of God. Now remember, the beast that comes out of the earth will blaspheme God, his home, his throne, and his people. But now here, Satan doesn't even get his toe into heaven. Let me just tell you something. This is not in my notes. I'm just kind of throwing this out there. Whether you're premillennial or whether you are amillennial or where you're just that panmillennial and it's just going to pan out all right in the end and you're good with that, I'm just simply telling you when you and I make it home to heaven, you will never have to worry about Satan again. The lamb is on the throne and Satan is defeated. He is gone. He is banished. He is done. He's done. That's the message of hope. And that's the message of hope I need to hear today. That's the message of hope you need to hear today. That even in the spiritual world where we cannot see, God is still on the throne. So for Anomalinius, this isn't the historical count. This would be kind of like live action in real time between the first advent of Jesus Christ and the second advent of Jesus Christ between his first coming and his second coming. By the way, look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power in the King of our God and the authority of Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they defeated him by the blood of the Lamb. They defeated him because the Lamb who was slain is still where? He's still on the throne by their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were not afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. Man, what a song of victory. Amen? That is a hail to the victors that if, it's played, if that is played at U of Michigan, U of M, I would sing that song. That is certainly called a victory. The third war. So the first war is on earth attacking Jesus Christ through his birth, infancy, childhood, ministry. Looked like he won on the cross, but ultimately was defeated when he rose again on the third day, ascended to heaven. And so because he ascended to heaven, the devil followed him there. That's the second war in heaven directed at Christ. And the third war is on earth directed at the woman who produced Christ. Now, in all honesty, there is a bit of overlap between a premillennialist view and an amillennialist view, and especially when you get to here, because in chapter 12 and verse 6, the woman took flight into the wilderness for protection. That woman is Israel. 
from whom Christ came, and from Christ the church came. And she was on the run for three and a half years, that last 42 months of the, of the, of the tribulation. However, this is not limited to the end time. Satan has been attacking Israel all throughout her national history. And so the idea is repeated in verse 14. Verse 14, she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. And there she could be cared for and protected from the dragon for time, times, and a half a time. All right? It's important to keep in mind that this is apocalyptic imagery. And some things, some think this refers to the fact that even though Israel has been scattered throughout the world, attacked, persecuted, oppressed, genocide thrown at them by Hitler and Auschwitz and other prison facilities during World War II, she's been able to preserve her ethnic and racial heritage. All efforts to destroy Israel has failed. So now the devil cannot defeat Christ on earth. The devil cannot defeat Christ in heaven. And the devil can't even defeat the nation of Israel. And everybody knew the nation of Israel's past. Oh my goodness, they were up and down spiritually. They were in and out spiritually. They were all over the place, close to God, away from God, far from God, on fire for God. I mean, they were everywhere. And if he couldn't get rid of that inconsistent bunch... It's important to keep in mind that here in the book of Revelation, as in the rest of the New Testament, if I had a pen, I would write this down. It's important to remember that here in Revelation, as elsewhere in the New Testament, the center of prophecy of God's plan and purpose is not the Jews. It is Jesus Christ. It is not the Jews. Oh, they're a part of the plan because they're the chosen nation, Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant. I, I get all of that. It's a covenantial relationship between God and heaven and the nation of Israel. But the covenant was fulfilled when Christ was born and died on the cross and rose again so that you and I and peoples of all the world, Jew and Gentile, can know Christ as their Savior. And so the main purpose of this imagery is not to show the destiny of the Jews, but to show the efforts of the devil and his anger, raging, and conflict, and how his efforts, again, fall short. So you have the first war on earth towards Christ and his ministry and life here. The second war in heaven directed at Christ. Third war directed at the nation of Israel. And this is all happening between the first advent and second advent, not necessarily in chronological order, but, but happening then you come to the fourth war. And the fourth war uh, is on earth directed at the church and you and me. Matter of fact, Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 through 18, you might just put directed at me. Satan coming for me. Satan looking for me. The Bible says, John would say in the Gospel of John, that, that the thief, the devil, the red dragon, comes only but to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, says, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. 
So, what do you see? Well, if you look at chapter 13, verses 1 and 10, this is where, again, the false, uh, the beast coming out of the sea makes its appearance again. The image is of a seven-headed, ten-horned beast coming up out of the out of the sea. This is, I'm sorry, this is the first beast, not the second beast. And the frightening imagery is ten horns symbolizes great power, seven heads symbolizes great witness, as, as the beast wears ten crowns, meaning great authority, and they all agree on that. And on his head were blasphemies against the followers of Jesus Christ, and he has vicious, relentless anger. You know, he's, he's got the nature of a leopard, bear, lion, and has great power given to him by the dragons. And on one of the Heads, you know, he's kind of got this fatal death look and blow and stroke given to him. And then you got the mark of the beast. 666. By the way, an amillennialist would hold that the safest method to determining the identity of this beast is to study the symbolism of that day. Of that day. So that you could understand its context in our day. Now, by the way, we do this all the time, don't we? When you're studying the Old Testament tabernacle, none of us have walked into an Old Testament tabernacle unless you went to the, the, the place in Orlando, Florida that has it, but none of us have done that. The legit Old Testament tabernacle or the legit Old Testament temple. And so we use language to kind of help us understand and we go back and we try to study out what the golden censer is and and the brazen altar and the outer court and the holies of holies and and uh and the inner courts and and understand what that is and you have to step into their culture to understand that and so all he's saying and all all millennials are saying is if you're going to understand the number 666 you got to understand the number six in their culture not ours and in their culture six was an incomplete number Matter of fact, it was an incomplete wicked number. And if you string sixes together, it's not 666, it's 666. I think I told you one time there was a kid at church camp this past summer. And uh, he follows Byron on Twitter and he was, six, he was 666. And he said, Mike, what does this mean? And I said, it means you were between 665 and 667. There, there's nothing evil in the number 666. But now the number 666 has symbolic issues attached to it. And has this idea of overpowering gloom, or not gloom, doom and evil and, and uh, yeah. The word beast comes up out of the water, all right? The word beast, chapter, thir- or chapter uh, 12, 13, verse 1. Let me get there. And then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Beast is an interesting word. It means wild, savage, jungle brute. You can compare that word with, with Daniel's prophecy, and you really got to if you're going to understand Revelation. Go back to the book of Daniel and read it and tie and mirror the two and tie the two together. But Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 8, and you'll see that the beast in Jewish apocalyptic literature symbolizes a ruler or his government. So if he was a godless king, they would call that godless king 
a beast. And it was that word in, in the New Testament, in the Koine Greek, in the Greek language, that would refer, it would have a double meaning referring to a kingdom or a king, and that it was this brute, fierce, jungle brute, wild, savage kind of thing. It just symbolizes an unbelieving dictator who persecutes the church. Somebody who is wild and out of control. By the way, the historical facts of the Roman emperor Domitian, and we talked about this in our, seven, in our sermon series, The Seven, but they fit this text, Revelation 30, 13, so wonderfully. Uh, he blasphemed God. He blasphemed the name of God and the sanctuary of God. That's found in verse 6. Domitian appropriated himself titles of deity. And, and he would be addressed as supreme Lord and God. Matter of fact, if you wrote him a letter or correspondence and, did have not, and you did not have on the envelope or the outer letter and you did not have as the salutation supreme, uh, I lost my place, supreme Lord and God, he would not receive your letter. He had supremacy over the whole world. Verse 7, he was worshipped by everyone except Christians. And we know that images were set up all over Asia Minor so that wherever you are, you could walk back one of his, walk by one of his statues and say, Curios Caesar, which means Caesar is Lord. Just like a soldier has to salute a superior soldier or the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, every time they pass, if you pass by this statue and did not say Curios Caesar, oh my goodness, you were marked for retribution. And of course, Christians would not. We know that, uh, anyway, you get the idea. And we've already talked about 666, and I want to kind of wrap, wrap it up here real quick. I got just one more war to get you through. Oh, no, that's the fourth war. And then you got the beast, and this beast uh, trains a group to enforce emperor worship. All right? Just like in church history, in the Dark Ages, there was this inquisition, and it was a horrible thing. It was a godless thing done in the name of God. It was horrific. There was nothing Christian about it. It may have started off as a good thing, trying to keep doctrine pure, but if you disagreed with the church, if you disagreed with the pope, if you disagreed with the bishop or the archbishop, you were ceremoniously just killed almost or burned at the stake on the spot. It was horrific. We, we've seen death squads, particular forces that were there just to... There's the KB, KGB in Russia. I mean, we've always seen these special units that have special functions. And in Asia Minor, there was this group called the Concilia, or the Council, the Concilia. And they were kind of, um, they, they were the folks who looked religious and enforced emperor worship. They were the ones that were standing by, spying on the statues, if if you didn't go by and say, Curios Caesar, or if the flame was lit on an altar to mention and you did not take some of the incense and sprinkle it on the altar and say, Curios Caesar. There were people who would mark you and there were people who would then arrest you and punish you until you renounced your faith in Christ and pledged loyalty 
So Domitian, I mean, he was a crazy, crazy, crazy man. By the way, there's four uh, characteristics that you can just kind of see there as you read through. The fourth battle against the Christians on earth. There are three members of the forces of evil. One's the dragon. One is, in John's day, and Amelinus would say the emperor, Domitian. And then the third would be this concilia, this, this group of militia that would spy out, you know, non-worshipping people and force them to, to acquiesce and give way to Rome and emperor worship. And so now you come to the end of chapter 13 from an amillennialist point of view and it looks desperate. It looks bad. This is the war that it looks like evil is winning. There was a resounding victory in the first war, a resounding victory in the second war, protection in the third war, but in this war, it looks like everything is kind of piling on and ganging up, and it looks like the whole world is just kind of circling the church and circling around the Christians to make them recant their faith in Jesus Christ and, and make them be loyal to Caesar And that's where chapter 13 ends, in this time of dire straits, tribulation, and travail. But good news, things are not as they seem. Take a peek at chapter 14 and verse 1. I don't have it on the screen. I thought I did, but I don't have it on the screen. But you are instantaneously introduced to the Lamb. Good news. Things are not as they seem. The Lamb is on the way. Let's pray. And, uh...